Good morning. How are you? Good to see you. It's great to have you folks join us from uh, all the other campuses as well. Great to see you guys getting up early. Uh, Lord willing, this will become a norm for you, but not, you know, every day of the week. I hope that Saturdays become the day that you get to sleep into 11 or whatever it is that you love to do. Look, I, I would be remiss if I did not mention that today is September 11th, and every American knows very much what that means. So, um, I do want to, we, we always say these little hashtags, never forget, so let's, let's never forget uh, what took place all those years ago. We faced lots and lots of heartaches as a country, and we just want to continue to ask the Lord's blessing on our land and certainly for peace everywhere, right? So these sorts of things don't have to happen in the future, and ultimately under Christ they won't. So I'm, I'm going to pray real quick for uh, that and for our chance to be in word together um, we're all over the Bible today, okay, so I normally I tell people, hey, open your scriptures and stuff and be ready. That's great. Your, their thumbs are going to get sore because I've got a lot of, a lot of Bible. This is going to be a pretty intense theological Bible study, but it's okay. It'll be a lot of fun. I promise at the end that you will, I don't know about you'll like it, but it, you'll, you'll have learned something. Anyway, let me pray. Father, I'm thankful for your grace and the preservation that you have shown to this country, you know, Lord. Um, our, our ancestors who came across the sea saw this as a, you know, a shining light and city in the hill type thing. Uh, we know, Lord, that your hand is on lots and lots of countries around the world and that you're, you know, in the, in the great wedding supper of the Lamb, there's going to be from every tribe, nation, and tongue there. So, Lord, we want to express our thankfulness for our brothers and sisters all over the world, regardless of where they, they are. But ultimately, Lord, we feel the things that we feel that are, that are local, and uh, that, the, that day in 2001 where uh, so many people lost their lives, and I'm sure the families are still dealing with the effects of that. We want to pray for them. We want to pray, Father, for our country, that righteousness would reign here, Lord, that you would give our leaders wisdom, and that ultimately, uh, Lord, your kingdom would come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven here in the United States of America. So bring us peace and joy. Help us to be redemptive factors in our communities uh, pray, Father, that you'd give us wisdom with all the politicking and uh, peace with peace and graciousness with our language, but ultimately, Lord, that you would get the glory and your name would be honored in all places. To that end, would you take this sermon now, Father, and would you use it for your glory? I pray if there's anything that's about to come out of my mouth that is not of you, that you just take it away now. And if it does happen, I pray that you just let it fly away in the air, but the pieces that are of you, we pray that it would stick deeply, Father, and you change our lives because of it. Thank you for your word. Thank you for our Lord Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You know, most churches, when you gather together uh, and you get a big crowd there, um, there is this temptation when the big crowd comes to keep talking about really positive things that bring the crowd back, right? It's just natural. They had a whole lot of, uh, over the years, a lot of church growth um, conferences and other things. And the idea was, listen, if you can appeal to people's felt needs, people will come to the church and they will sit there and you can give them, you know, tips for living, five better ways to get some sleep, five better, whatever it is. And they'll keep coming back, especially if you make the worship services something that they're particularly engaged with. And there's nothing wrong, quite honestly, with engaging worship. So I hope that every time you come to harvest, you are engaged by the worship. Our goal is to edify you completely. So um, nothing wrong with that. But it is interesting that when you go to the scriptures and, and you ask the question, what does Jesus do when the crowds gather? It's a little bit different 
than what our churches have done. Here's an example, Luke chapter 14, verse 25. Now, great crowds accompanied him, right? Lots of people all over the place. And he turned and he said to them, it's great to have you guys here today. What else can I do for you? No. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That's an attention-getting introduction, I would think. I'm not sure this is the sermon that everybody came to hear. They wanted to see the show. They wanted to see, you know, the power. Heal somebody, Jesus. You know, bring lightning from heaven, Jesus. Do something fantastic. The crowds come around. Sometimes he's pushed off of the shore into a boat so he can preach to them. But when he gets a chance to preach to the crowds, he says stuff like this. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower doesn't first sit down and count the cost? Whether he has enough to complete it. I mean, if you, in our context, you're going to build a house and you think, what are my finances? None of us would get involved without the finances sorted out. We, we plan ahead when you're building a house. You don't just be like, hey, I got five bucks. Let's see how much that goes. Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish all who see it, they begin to mock him. Look, in an honor and shame culture like this, that's like the worst thing. You bring great shame upon your name and your family's name if you end up building something and you don't complete the thing. It just shows that you are inept. You don't plan well. Who's your father? He must be inept too. And just cast doubt and aspersion on all your family. They mock you saying, uh, this man began to build and wasn't able to finish. <laughs> or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, won't sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. Yeah, I mean, if you only got 10,000, you look around and say, are they strong enough? I mean, maybe we can take them if we have like the advanced technology or something. But that's a plan. You sit around your big table with the little ponds on all the different areas of the property that you want to advance. And you think, maybe this won't work. Because if it won't work, you're not going to get involved. And if not, if you can't take the opponent while the other is yet a great way off, he, he, send, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So there, therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all he has cannot be my disciple. You can just see the sermon. Let's pray, says Jesus. <laughs> Our mission as a church is to glorify God by the fulfillment of the Great Commission. The Great Commission is to make disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I commanded you, says the Lord Jesus. I'll be with you always, he says, even to the end of the age. Our mission, as a church, the reason Harvest Bible Chapel exists is in order to fulfill that commission. Namely, Harvest Bible Chapel is here to make disciples. 
But when we use that language, make disciples, what are we meaning by that word? Disciple. What is a true disciple? You, you can claim, the word means learner. You can claim to be a learner of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, and not be the real Thing. That's why Jesus gets the crowds together. They're learners, they're followers, and he says, all right, so a whole bunch of you guys might not actually be the real thing because you have to deny everything you have in order to be my disciple. So count the cost. Uh, the next few minutes will be an exercise in counting the cost. And there's a crowd here. So let me try to explain to you what the Bible teaches about the nature of discipleship. What does it mean to be a true disciple of the Lord Jesus? What marks must you have in order to be a true disciple? What character traits must you have in order to be a true disciple? So here's what I want to do. I'm going to give you three characteristics of saving faith. Three characteristics of true discipleship and then Two implications. Here's my thesis. Do you guys remember English class when you were taught to do that? Some of you were like, yes, I forgot that as soon as it was given to me. A thesis is a statement that summarizes the entire thing. So I'm going to give you my thesis up front. And then I'm going to try to show you how the Bible teaches exactly what I'm saying. Here we go. The thesis is saving faith is a professed, practiced, and persevering faith. All three of those must be present for a person to be truly saved. Saving faith is a professed, practiced, and persevering faith. Those are the marks of it. All three must be present in order for a person to be genuinely saved. So let's, let's deal with them in the, that order. Professed first. Um, a professed faith. There's this old story. Um, there's this old story that uh, I heard years ago, it's a, it's, a, it's a joke, it's not an actual thing. It deals with a guy who's standing on a bridge and he's about to jump off. He thinks his life is absolutely worthless, but then this guy comes up behind him and he was walking across the bridge, this guy who came up behind him, and he said, I, I saw a man standing on the edge about to jump off and I immediately ran over and I said, stop, don't do it. Well, why shouldn't I, he said. And I said, well, there's, there's so much to live for. Like what? Well, are you religious or an atheist? Well, I'm religious, he said. Ah, me too. Are you a Christian or Jewish? I'm a Christian, he said. Me too. Are you Catholic or Protestant? I'm a Protestant. Me too. Are you Episcopalian or Baptist? I'm a Baptist. Hey, me too. Are you a Baptist Church of God or Baptist Church of the Lord? Well, I'm the Baptist Church of God. Hey, <laughs> me too. Are you the original Baptist Church of God or are you the Reformed Baptist Church of God? Well, I'm, I'm Reformed Baptist Church of God, he said. Hey, me too. But are you Reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1879, or the Reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1915? Well, I'm the, I'm the Reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1915, to which I said, then die, heretic scum, and I pushed him off. Nothing like the great murder joke in this, in this sermon to get you going, right? You get the idea, though. I think we, divine, we love to define the lines so, so narrowly. This is old, actually a joke. I used to work 
in Canada for a church that was affiliated with a denomination called the Mennonite Brethren, who historically have been very closed off from lots of other, you know, we're right and the rest of everybody else not right. And so there's this joke that uh, this, this guy goes to heaven and Peter's there, he's taking him a tour of heaven. And so he's showing around and he goes over to one corner and he says, hey, this is, where all the, this is where all the Baptists are. And they're all still sitting there, still wondering, you know, what's going on. Here's the Presbyterians who are finally joyful and raising their hands because they're in heaven. Pentecostals are way more Pentecostal now. The, he goes to the other the Lutherans. There's all these different groups of people who are all there. But there's a fenced-off section in the corner. And the guy who's, visit, who, who's come to heaven, he, Peter takes him over there. And he says, why, why are all those people fenced off? And Peter said, oh, oh when we go over here, you've got to be really quiet. Just shh. The Mennonite brethren are over there, and they think they're alone. That's a better joke than you guys just. <laughs> you get the idea, though, right? And basically, the idea is that somebody, that, 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 that if, you're, if you're a believer in Jesus, you're the right kind of believer in Jesus. And lots of other people aren't the right kinds of believers in Jesus. I mean, we've split our churches off. There's every corner, there's a different kind. A Reformed Baptist Church of 1879 versus a Reformed Baptist Church of 1915. We break and break and break and break. And so as a result in our society these days, especially in the Christian community, the impulse is not, you know, if somebody comes along and says, we're forming our own church because we don't like you anymore. Most people look at that person and say, you're, you're crazy. Stop it. Stop dividing everything up into little square. We can worship together. We can be together. So we've responded to that by saying, well, actually, nothing really matters. For his, in, in history, we've drawn the line so narrowly that we don't want to be like that anymore. Let's just remove the boundaries altogether. And let's just talk about what we commonly share, which is our love for Jesus Let's forget all this talk about doctrine. What really matters, we say, is that you have warm feelings for Jesus. Like when I say his name, do you go, oh, I like him. But is that true? Like when you look at the scriptures and you ask the question, right, so... What must somebody profess in order to be saved? There are passages that actually speak about it. Here's one, Romans 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth, says the, the Apostle Paul, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is what? Lord. That's a theological statement. It, does, it, it doesn't say that Jesus is my fuzzy bunny friend. I mean, that Jesus is my therapeutic help, that he is the guy who comes along and gives me warm feelings from time to time when I'm feeling down. No, he's actually, you got to believe that he's Lord, Master, Authority. The person under whom you place all of your allegiance, right? I mean, he's Lord, and you have to believe in your heart that he's a really nice guy. No, that, that, that God raised him from the dead. That's a historical claim. You have to believe in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. You have to believe that he's Lord and he raised from the dead. And if you believe that, you, you, you will be saved. There's content in the belief. When you use the name Jesus, you're talking about a particular person who has particular character traits that lived a particular way, is related to the Father in a particular way. You can use my wife's name and talk about 
her, but if the way that you talk about her is not true about her, I'm going to say, I don't think you know her. Um, here's another one. Uh, Paul is talking to his protege, Timothy, here. And Timothy's the pastor of a church in Ephesus. And so this is like a pastoral encouragement letter from an older mentor to the pastor. And he says, Timothy, I need you to keep a close watch on, note it, note it yourself and on the teaching. Like, like the teaching. Not just any teaching, but there is a, a certain teaching a certain set of doctrines that has been handed down to you, Timothy, and I need you to keep a close watch on this. You need to persist in it because people are going to come around and they're going to be really angry because they don't believe the stuff that you're saying. The society is going to move one way and then the other. There'll be an in-season and an out-of-season, says Paul, for you to pre preach this gospel, but you've got to hold on to the teaching and persist in it, for by so doing, you will save both yourselves, your, your own salvation matters here because if you end up twisting it, Timothy, you end becoming a false teacher, it will save both yourself and your hearers. In other words, your job, Timothy, is to pass on the good deposit that was given you. Nothing more, nothing less. Preserve it, persist in what it is. And that thing, that group of teachings is something that has boundaries. Around it, speaking of false teaching, the book of Jude is basically about it. Judas, he, 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 he has to address some issues that are happening in the church to, to which he's writing. And he says, beloved, this is the very beginning of the book, beloved, uh, although I was very eager to write to you about our, our common salvation. See, I, I want to encourage you with all the really good things that we share together, right? We're in eternity and heaven with Jesus. We follow and we experience all of these blessings as being part of the church, the Holy Spirit's work in our lives, the assurance of faith. All of those things are fantastic. I wanted to write to you about all of those things. It would have been a great letter, says Jude, really positive. But I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. What faith? The faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. See, there's a set of doctrine that you've been delivered to you that was handed down through the ages. It has certain boundaries around it that talk about Jesus in particular ways, but there are certain people who have crept in unnoticed. See, they're part of your congregation. They just sort of crept in unnoticed. They didn't make a big fanfare about it. They showed up. Everyone loves them, had them over for tea or had them for lunch. Their kids play together. Those people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. They're ungodly people. They might be really nice people. But ultimately, they're ungodly because they pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So you get these people who are twisting the doctrine, who are part of the community. And Judas saying, actually, if you read the rest of the book, Judas saying, yeah, you've got to get rid of them. Look, look, the point here is pretty simple. It, it does matter what you believe. There's a core of Christian truth that you must embrace in order to be saved. Jesus is Lord and, and God. He died for your sins. He was raised from the dead. He is part of the, the Trinity. 
Well, I, I don't understand the Trinity. It's okay, nobody does. But it shouldn't surprise you that there are certain aspects of God and his character, his infinitude is what we say, his infinite qualities that lie outside of your finite understanding. If you could totally understand him, he's not much of a God. So there are a bunch of things you have to believe and not deny in order to be, in order to be a Christian. And I say all of this um, in order to emphasize that saving faith is a professed faith that has these core, and I, I just think this is a really shocking statement for people in our society today. Here's, here's why. You guys ever been to the Build a, G, build a Bear Workshop? Yeah? Some of you, those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, in these malls, they had this idea a while ago. I think they're still around. And the idea was that you go in and you can select what kind of bear you want to build for yourself, okay, or for your kids. You go in and you can pick, you know, a certain head for the bear and a certain body for the bear. You can put a zebra head on a bear, you know, and make this thing an abomination. You can do whatever you want at the Build-A-Bear workshop. You just pick a little bit of this, a little bit of that. You want some pink in your bear, you just add a little bit of pink and some glitter. You like that at the end, they stuff them all full and they hand them to you. There's this moment, they give you a little card. My birthday was today. And then they hand it to you. You get to name the bear. My name, my bear's name is abomination, you know, and there you're holding this bear and you love it. It's an interesting concept because essentially what they're saying is you, you get to choose all the things you like and you can leave behind all the things you don't like. You get to create for yourself this this little pal who's going to help you in the midst of your distress or difficulty. He's going to be a, a, a tool of therapy for you. I actually think that a good chunk of churches these days are basically build a Jesus workshops. Like, I actually think that that's the attitude that they've got here. Hey, you guys, I don't want to tell you anything that's really bad or hard about Jesus. I don't want to tell you some of the stuff like he says, the count the cost. You can hate your father and mother. That he says, I'm the only way to God. That he has particular sexual ethics that he endorses and others that he says will lead you far away from me. I don't want to say that in a society, so we don't. You come in the door, we'll play some songs, get you riled up, make you feel good. I'll tell you, you got five ways through a better sleepless night, you know, or whatever. And, and, and you'll go out and you'll be happy. And, and what you believe about Jesus, it's all good. It's all good, but it's not all good. It's, it's not all good. Those who advocate that kind of approach are leading people astray. You know, we shouldn't be surprised that they're around because, look, the Bible told us that this would happen. The false prophets, Second Peter chapter 2, false prophets also arose among the people. He's talking about the Old Testament. Hey, guys, remember back in the Old Testament, there were false prophets who arose and they were part of your community. They were your friends. They arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. Who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. Bringing upon themselves swift destruction for twisting all of this. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, because of the false teachers, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, isn't it always, isn't it always the greed? 
hey, you know what? Here's the secret about Jesus. He's not actually what everybody else told you he is. He's actually this secret knowledge sort of Jesus. He's this kind of way. And if you believe this, you should come along. You can get lots and lots of extra cool things if you pray, decree, and declare all this stuff. But you know what? You need to sow a seed, and it's going to be $100 if you give $100. If you get 1000 then maybe you'll get more, more stuff in their greed. They'll exploit you with these words. Their condemnation from long ago, it's not idle, meaning it, 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 God's not like, oh, it's no big deal. And their destruction is not asleep. God's not forgotten. Look, it's not enough to feel warm fuzzies for Jesus. We have to believe that he's Lord and he's God. Saving faith is a professed faith. It's also a practiced faith. Um, so there are lots of people who are like, yeah, I'm right with you when it talks to profession. That's actually true, you know? People need to get these things sort of right. You can't turn Jesus into something that he's not and believe that he's going to actually save you. He's not the real Jesus. Only the real Jesus saves. So let's get our doctrine in order and let's profess it properly and all of that sort of thing. But that's not really the problem, quite honestly, in the United States these days as much as this is. Um... Let me go to James chapter 2. Um, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says, says he has faith? Hey, man, I believe in the Jesus, even the real one, but he doesn't have works, M- meaning that this profession is something that they say, maybe even write down and sign on to a doctrinal statement, but when it comes to living their lives, it shows no reflection of the belief that they have that was just stated. I believe that Jesus is Lord. And but what he says about all that stuff is not really my jam. So I'm going to go this way. Do something else. I'll just, I mean, I'll come back to church next week and I'll sit there and feel bad about it until Monday and then I'll go off and do the thing again. Isn't this great? It's a great system. You can come back to church, you get forgiven, you go away. You come back. Can, can that faith save him? That kind of faith, professed but not practiced, Faith, look, okay, illustration time says, James, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, hey, go in peace, be warmed and filled. You can picture that, right? You walk up next to a brother or sister, somebody who you know and is close to you and they're in the gutter and they've got tatters, you know, maybe it's your sister, your actual brother. Hey, and they say, I'm thirsty and starving. And you go, I'm just gonna pray for you right here. Oh, Lord, give them some food and warmth. Okay, then, bye-bye. Okay, if, if that's the case and you don't give them the things needed for the body, if it's just words that you're giving them but not actual help, what, what, what good is that? And the answer is not much. So also, uh, faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. Not like a secondary kind of faith. Not like, hey, it's the kind of faith that you can have and still be saved, but you know, you're not gonna get extra rewards. No, it's dead. It's dead. Okay, wait a minute. Someone's gonna object here. Uh, You have faith and I have works. Okay, show me your faith apart from your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. See, you believe 
that God is, is one. That's the word, uh, that, that's what we call the Shema in the Old Testament. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. It was the most orthodox statement for a Jewish person to make. The Lord, the Lord, he is one. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. Right? The Lord is one. Orthodoxy. You say that. You believe that God is one. Well, that's a good statement. You do well. But you know what? Even, even the demons believe that and shudder. Seriously, you guys remember when Jesus comes out to the demons and he's casting them out of some guy and they're like, you're the most high God. That's orthodox. Now that's some good profession there, isn't it? What James is essentially trying to say here is if you're, if you're just professing faith, no matter how doctrinally accurate you are, if you're just professing faith and it's not having legs and working it out in your life, you're basically the same as a demon. Good job. You have a demonic kind of faith. Luke chapter 6. Jesus picks this up. Uh, you, you call me Lord, Lord. Ooh, he doubled it up. Right? Oh, you're not just the Lord. You're Lord. Lord, right? Whole nother level. He's just... If you call me Lord, Lord, orthodox statement, and don't do what I tell you. In other words, you don't, you're my master, but I'm not going to submit to you as the master. Why do you do that? You see, everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, let me, let me show you what they're like. I'm gonna, he, he's like a man who's, who's building a house. So picture this. And he dug down deep and laid the foundation on the rock, and when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do it is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. This is an amazing picture. You got a river. And you've got two houses. One guy across the, the river said, I mean, he actually went to the architect and the civil engineers and said, I'm going to build this down and do the soils analysis. He, he does this whole thing and he builds it up. The guy across the river sees that. And it's like, that's fantastic. I'm going to copy your house. But instead of building the foundation, he just like copies the house, plops it on the sand. When you ride down the river in your canoe and you look to one side and you look to the other side, you say, both of those houses are so beautiful. Oh, look at how wonderful they are. The only thing that ultimately will reveal the truth of the houses in terms of their stability is the flood. What Jesus is essentially saying is, look, there's going to be a day where God actually lifts the gates of the dam and he just lets it go. You're going to stand before him and say, look at my beautiful house. Look at my beautiful house, Jesus. Okay, let's see what it's like. Lifts the gates of the dam. One of them's going to go down river. The other one's going to stand strong. The difference between the two is the standing strong one is the one who heard and did. But isn't it crazy? Like, there are people, in other words, who can live their entire life in this house that they think is totally sound. But when they stand before Jesus, as Matthew says, he's going to say, depart from me. I didn't know you, you worker of lawlessness. Your actions, my actions are the things that show our real belief. 
Saving faith is a practiced faith. My tree in my backyard uh, this year, big, beautiful tree, and it had no leaves. I mean, it was, it was pretty bad. So we called the guy. He came out, and he, was, he took some samples and stuff and said, yeah, this is, tree's diseased and dead. And I looked at it, and I said, how do you know? Because there's nothing on it. Like, I don't need the arborist to come out and tell me that. I mean, he told me what kind of disease it was. That's nice. But ultimately, he said, you need to cut it down. If you give me thousands of dollars, I'll do it. And how much for the, for the advice? $1,000. Come on, man. It's not hard. You walk in, any of you can walk into my backyard and go, you have a dead tree right here. How do you know? Well, actually, because it doesn't have any fruit on it. And this is the point Jesus makes in other places. You can tell the state of a tree. You can tell the root of a tree by the fruit of the tree. You can tell the health of the root by the presence of the fruit. And it is no different in your life. There's a reason it's called fruit of the Spirit. If the Spirit is active in the life of a person, it will yield certain things that are observable. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, yes? If those things are not there, the Apostle Paul actually was having this very issue with the people of, the, of Corinth, and he got so sick of it after a while. I mean, they had a, a letter-writing campaign back and forth with each other, and Paul, at the end of 2 Corinthians 13, he ended up saying this. He said, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Look, you guys are professing lots of things and not following through with the things you're professing. I need you to examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. You, you, you need to test yourselves. Or, or don't you realize this about yourselves? See, there's two options. Either you don't, aren't in the faith or you're in the faith and you don't realize that Jesus Christ is in you. It should change something, is his point, and it's not. So don't deceive yourselves. Don't lie. I'm going to tell you ahead of time that you know, the dam is going to break and that water is going to come down and the house that you think is so safe is going to go down the river if you say one thing and do another. If you say you're a child of God, but there's no evidence of your father's likeness in you, it's possible you're not what you think you are. Professed faith, practiced faith, persevering faith is my last one. Um. All over the scriptures, you get language like this, especially in the New Testament. Uh, Paul, talking about the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you, you received, see, profession, you, hey, probably got baptized based on the profession of faith, in, in which you stand, right? So you're, you're holding on, you're excited about it. And by which you're, you're being saved. It's working itself out in your life. I want to remind you of that gospel. And it's, it's saving you. Look at the word. If. There's a condition. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you. I mean, unless you believed in vain. Because you can. You can believe in vain. You know what I mean? Where you start and then it just dies What, what, what do we say about someone like that? Well, okay, Revelation chapter two. Man, I could do this all day. I, when I was preparing this sermon, I was just trying to pick from the different texts, pick texts I haven't shared in other contexts before. 
There's like a hundred of these. I have a class that I teach where that's all it is. Seven weeks of me reading the Bible like this. After a while, people are like, stop, stop, we get it. I'm like, no, 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 another day. And you keep coming. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Revelation chapter two, this is one of the letters to the churches in Revelation. Don't fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. Well, what's gonna be tested? For 10 days, you'll have tribulation. But look, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. The crown which is life. You be faithful unto death, and you will receive the crown which is eternal life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. You're going to face all sorts of challenges and tribulations, but you got to keep going. you got to keep walking with Jesus. He promises to be with you. He says, what I began in you, I will complete in you. Philippians 1.6. But you got to keep Keep going. What if I don't? What if, what if I choose that I'm, okay, I'm gonna call myself a Christian. I'm even gonna have a couple of you know, evidences that I am one, but I'm not gonna do that for, forever. There's gonna be a point at which I'm just deliberately and consistently turning away from, from Jesus. What do we say about that person? All right, uh, Hebrews 10. This is kind of my last one, and the reason is because it's so Pointed. If we go on sinning, notice the language, if we go on sinning deliberately. We're not talking about somebody who sinned and then repented and sinned and repented. We're talking about somebody who's gone on sinning, who continues in it in a deliberate fashion. It's called high-handed sin. It's what your kids do to you when you say, clean the room, and they're like, make me. Oh, it's on, you know? Like... <laughs> It's that attitude. It's this, oh, I see what you say, Lord, about my sexual life. Hmm, that's really interesting. I think I'll do this instead. In fact, I'll justify this. I'll even say it's what the Bible teaches. I'll figure out a way. You know, there's somebody on the internet who argues somewhere. Just Google it, you know, somewhere that, that this, the actual meaning of this text, given the background, you know, because I was there. And so the background, and it teaches something else. If you go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, it's not like you haven't that the gospel proclaimed to you or you've received it. If that's the case, if that describes you, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. You're not God's friend. I mean, you say you are, but you're not God's friend. Look, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses has set aside the law, right? You've got Moses coming down through a mountain giving the law. In the Old Testament, if someone said, well, I really think that law is great with their words, but then they quietly were like, you know, but I'm not going to listen to it. Hey, when you guys go and you, take, and you, and you win the battle over, over you know, this, this city of Ai, don't take any of the plunder for yourselves. And Achan goes in and he grabs some of the stuff and hides it under his place. You know, he received the word. Oh yeah, that's a great thing. Thank you, Moses, for the instructions. But he deliberately and high-handedly continued in that act. 
hid it underneath his bed. When they found it, did they go, oh, you made a mistake, buddy. Nah, they killed him right there. Because that's the way it worked. If you set aside the law of Moses, you died without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the, the Son of God? Think about how much more worthy Jesus is than the Mosaic law. He, he's the greater revelation. You, you've received him, you understand what's going on with him, and that you push him aside and you trample him underfoot by saying, yeah, I believe in you, but then you go do something else and persist in that? You've profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. He, he's outraged the spirit of grace, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge who? His people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That was spoken to Christians in a church. It's interesting that passage continues and it changes tune, <laughs> praise God. It's almost like he, he lets it pause and sit there for a minute. It's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God and then, but recall the former days. Do you guys remember back in the day where you came to faith and after you were enlightened, look, you endured a hard struggle with suffering. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. And sometimes you guys got mocked for being Christians and you just kept, you kept going, you stuck together. And sometimes you were partners with those who were treated that way. I mean, they were in prison and you brought stuff to them to help them thereby identifying yourself with the people in political prison and exposing yourself to the political violence that they got. You had compassion on those in prison. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. I mean, the riots came. They stole all of your stuff. You didn't think in that moment, hey, I'm gonna turn aside and go back to the way I was, or I, I, I'm, I'm not gonna follow Jesus. You were so committed to following Jesus, that didn't matter. Because you knew that you yourselves had a better position and an abiding one, a long-term one in heaven. Therefore, don't throw away your confidence. It has great reward. What are we talking about in terms of the reward? You have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised? What's promised? What's the reward for yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay? But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But guys, we are not of those who shrink back and are what? Destroyed. We are those who have faith and preserve their Souls, there's the reward. True faith perseveres amidst struggle. The one who begins but does not finish is not going to simply miss out on some special blessings in heaven. Oh, the Bible is pretty clear. They're going to miss out on heaven itself, eternity with Christ itself. The hardest thing in my ministry life has been this fact. I led teams of young adults. Um, 
I had a leadership group in New Zealand that had about 10 students in it, 10 young adults. And out of that 10 young adults, I spent two years in leadership development with them every week in my house, teaching them things about Jesus, about the glory of God. Ten, ten of them sitting in my house. Eight of them have fallen away from the faith since. Like when I tell you that, their faces are in my mind. It breaks my heart. I hear from them from once in a while, and they're not interested in Jesus any longer, and it kills me. And family members like this, and I, it kills me. It just makes me think, what in the world has happened? But it has led me to realize that every time I speak to a group, a room full of Christian, Christian people, it is quite possible that a good chunk of them are on their way to what we call apostasy. They're on their way to turning away from the living God. But they think they're okay. The Apostle Paul, when he'd go around to these different churches, after he would preach the gospel to them, when he came back the second time, he always had the same sermon. You know that? Um, here's what he did in Acts 14. Uh, Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they, they stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. By the way, to suppose somebody is dead means they're not moving, right? You, you get down there and try to hear their breath. They're so beat up, they're like, well, he's basically dead. Call the vultures. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up. Oh, praise God, Paul, let's get you somewhere safe. No, he entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas, his buddy, to Derby, next town over. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, the place where he got beaten up, and to Iconium, where the Jews came who did the beating up, and to Antioch. And what was he doing when he went to those places? Did he just kind of pass through quietly? No, he went to the churches and he strengthened the souls of the disciples. How? How did you do it, Paul? You encouraged them to continue in the faith. That's the title of his message. When he comes back, bruises all over him, he says, you have to continue. I know you've received it already, but you've got to continue or it's all for naught. It's, th it's through many tribulations, says the guy who's got scars and bruises all over his body. It's through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So my thesis, saving faith is a professed, practiced, and persevering faith. All three have to be present for a person to be truly saved. Look, in the last few minutes here, all I want to do is I want to give you two implications, two big implications to what I've, I've just said, okay? Here's the first one. You need to consider yourself. Um, you know, he goes to the, Jesus, when he comes to these crowds and he gives these hard words, you know, in J John chapter 6, he does a similar thing. The crowds are gathering all around him. They want to come and see the show. And he stands in front of them and he says these really hard things. You kind of want to pull him aside and say, Jesus, you know, this is the opportunity for the megachurch. And he doesn't do it. He's like, yeah, actually, let me, just, let me just give you words. He says stuff like, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And a bunch of the disciples are like, <laughs> they even say, that's a hard word. And they get up and they leave. A whole bunch of disciples get up and leave. The reason most pastors don't talk about stuff like this is because that's their fear, that people are going to get up and leave. Dude, I, I get it. I, I understand if you respond to, 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 
to these things by thinking those are hard words. In fact, too hard to accept. I, I want to go find a place where that's not true. But, but listen to me. Listen to me. You are not helped if there is a cliff in front of you and someone doesn't tell you. You are not helped by people who are encouraging you to have a better night's sleep, and here's five ways how, when you're on a pathway that is leading to destruction. What you need is somebody, a messenger, a proclaimer to say to you, hey, the way you're going, not safe. In fact, the one who sits by and just pats you on the deck and back and says, hey, you're okay, while you're heading headlong over the cliff, they don't like you. But the one who stands and says that to you, they love you. I love you. Jesus loves you. There's a reason these warnings are in the Bible. He doesn't need to give them. He's giving them for the same reason that you give your child warnings about the electrical outlet. And you say it in loud, harsh terms when they go over there and their fingers or they take their fork, and they shove it in there and you're like, ah! Your child might even get scared and they flee, they start to cry, but you love them. That's why you said it. That's why you warned. It's because you love. All of these things are in the scriptures because God loves you and he wants you to know the truth. So if it hurts you, great. God disciplines those he loves. The beauty of the gospel is that it welcomes the people who really suck at this. <laughs> like, that's actually the qualification. It's like, oh my gosh, I run away from you all the time, Lord. Save me. Hey, come back in. He's the father scanning the horizon, waiting for just the little evidence that the prodigal is willing to come back. <laughs> and he runs out like a little kid and hugs him. And That's why they're in the Jesus welcomes all who come to their senses and seek reconciliation. It's very much, listen, I believe in the sovereignty of God. It's very much possible that you're sitting here today because God placed you here and he needed you to hear this message. And the choice now is for you. Do you want to get up and go? Don't follow him anymore? Or do what Peter said when all those disciples left. Peter said, well, I don't know why, where we'd go. You have the words of eternal life. But finally, um, I do want to talk about our church for just a couple of minutes. Uh, we need to consider ourselves, but we also have to consider our, our church. Have you ever been to a race? You know, like where they start the race, there's a whole crowd around, and they're standing around, and they're like, yeah! And everyone screams when they shoot the thing. Yeah! It's so appropriate to cheer when the race is started. But I will tell you this, that if you are running a race... Uh, the time that you don't need the cheers is at the beginning. What you need is people with you to run the race with you who can cheer you along the way. You need your friends to hightail it to the mile five and then mile seven and mile 10 and mile whatever and stand on the side and go, you can do it! Celebrate and then when you finish, the, the, the cheers are louder than when you began. Our churches these days focus mainly on profession. That's what we want. We want you to come and we want you to profess faith in Christ. That's why we have all the big impact stuff that we do in front of people. 
And it's all great. I want you to confess faith in Christ. I want you to bring your friends who don't know Jesus here. I want to tell them about the gospel. I want them to repent and be saved. But that's just the beginning. We haven't completed anything yet. It's the start of the race and we say, yay, but now, but now what? But now what? Churches treat the gospel like it's a timeshare because they just want to get people in the door. Oh, you should come. It's really great. It's fantastic. Jesus, every day with Jesus is better and better. Yeah, but what about this fine print that says count the cost? Don't pay any attention to that. We won't, we won't talk about that ever. No, no, a church that's faithful and a church that loves you is going to talk about all of that. Because we must be where profession, practice, and perseverance are taught and celebrated. To be anything less, to do anything less, is to despise people. Let, let us, let harvest be known as the place you can come and you can have people tell you the truth about how glorious the love of Christ is and his forgiveness is and how serious the commitment to him must be. Everything we do as a church, everything we do as a church has as its goal to produce disciples who are professing, practicing, and persevering. So let me finish with just an image. Here's an easy image. Uh, you guys ever ridden a, your bike, whatever? If you, I ride, like riding my bike alone because I'm horribly slow. People invite me and say, you want to come ride with me? No. No, I don't because you'll make fun of me the whole time. No, no, I'll ride slower. I'll bring my like girl bike or whatever. Uh, fine, don't stop, okay? So <laughs> seriously, you could bring the girl bike. All the girls pass me too. It doesn't matter. I stink at it. But I like riding. I did find one time, though, when I went out and rode, rode with some guys, they said, listen, here's the deal. We need to just put you right in the middle of us. It's like eight guys, and they surrounded me. It was like I had all these bodyguards around me. And I realized when I was in the middle of the eight guys, the biggest guys were in the front just plowing through the air. Right in the middle, I was sitting there, and honestly, I, I didn't even have to pedal. Like, I was talking away. Everyone else, <laughs> I said, hey, how's it going, guys? This is so fun. I really like all of this because they were just pulling me right along. That's what happens when you stick in the Peloton. That's what happens when you're part of a body of people who are working toward the same goal and who care for you enough to make sure that you get there. Isn't that what our church would be? That's why I want you to come here and join us when we gather on the weekend so there's a bunch of us who can gather around you and carry you through in the difficult moments. And there'll be moments where it's not massively difficult for you, but it's difficult for them. And so you can gather around them. We want you to get in groups of people and these small groups because you want to actually know them and be able to discern, hey, I don't think you're doing so hot. Or they can discern, say, I don't think you're doing so hot. You need help right now. We want to go out into the community and see more people come in here so that they can profess, practice, and ultimately persevere. That's, that's what we're here for, all of that. Everything we do as a church is focused on that. So look, I want you to get inside the Peloton. I want you to be part of what we're doing here. We're moving toward a place that's magnificent. The Lord's got so much in store for this church. Jesus, he's out in the front. And he's just plowing the way, baby. Slip into the slipstream. 
Follow him together with me and with everyone else. Let this church be a place that welcomes all into the great peloton of faith that we together, we might finish it as God intends. The race ahead of us has a lot of hills and valleys. The wind is gonna be against us at times, but it's gonna be with us at others. Our savior and king, he's charting the course. So what do you wanna do? I say, let's ride we pray. Father, I'm thankful for your goodness and your kindness to us by giving us passages like this that are both like a bit of a kick in the stomach, but also a reminder of the grace that you've given us in Christ, who seeks us out by kicking us in the stomach and grabbing us and bringing us back. We know, Father, as parents, this is the way that you have to do it sometimes. Sometimes you have to, you know, shock and on so that you can bring the kids back to safety. And Father, I pray that that would be the effect for so many here I pray, Father, for Harvest Bible Chapel that more than anything, this church will be a place of uh, growth, a place of honesty, a place where um, we help each other to finish the race, where we tell the truth to each other, and where ultimately, Father, you can do your great work. Would you use us? We're just a simple group of people, Father, trying our best. Would you use us to reach this community that we may see your kingdom come and your glory be known in all places? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.